Good evening. I'm glad that you're, you're here tonight. And I'm so thankful for a good sound system. So uh, we're, we're getting back into our Hebrew study after a, a brief hiatus. And I want you to know I'd rather be here with you than where I was last week, I promise you. I promise you that. So um, in Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to look tonight, hopefully, at verses 5 to 13. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the word of the living God. We're so thankful that your word is powerful, so powerful that it pierces our hearts. It reveals things in our lives that need to be revealed and dealt with. And, and Father, it encourages us at times when we need encouragement. So we're so thankful that we can gather together tonight and we can open the Bible and we can see what you have for us out of the Word of God. Lord, it seems like every time we get together, you reveal things to us and you speak to our hearts in ways that really challenge us and help us and direct us. And we thank you for that. So, Father, I pray that, that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit tonight. I pray, Lord, that you would give me strength and energy. I pray, Heavenly Father, that I could teach without coughing. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that that in every way the Lord Jesus is glorified tonight. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, John Milton wrote an epic uh, poem entitled Paradise Lost. And in Paradise Lost, he depicted the creation of man, the fall of man, and the effects of the fall of, uh, on heaven, in heaven, on earth, and in hell. And then he described the efforts of God to redeem the human race by sending the Lord Jesus into the world. Four years later, he wrote an, another epic poem entitled Paradise Regained. These two ideas, paradise lost and paradise regained, sort of capture the essence of what we're going to look at tonight in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 13. In Hebrews chapter 1, the writer, the author, demonstrated from the Old Testament scriptures the deity of Jesus and his supremacy over the angels. Now in chapter 2, verses 5, I've got through 14. I thought I was going to get to 14, but I couldn't get to it tonight. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 13, the author demonstrates the humanity of Jesus and his supremacy over the angels. So first, deity and his supremacy over the angels. Secondly, um, Humanity and his and his supremacy over the angels. So he lays out all the implications of that for us in this text tonight. Now, this once again, this is a very practical letter. Remember, it was written mainly to a Jewish audience. Therefore, when you when you try to understand what's being written you have got to look at it through the prism of its Jewishness or you'll never be able to understand it. In fact, we're going to talk about some stuff tonight that when you, when you think about who he was writing to, it makes a lot more sense than if you don't think about who he's writing to. So it's a practical letter. In chapters two, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, which we looked at earlier, um, there is the first warning passage in the book. 
Now there are several others. Chapters three, chapter three, seven to nineteen, chapter five, eleven to fourteen, chapter six, one to eight, and chapter ten, twenty-six to thirty-one. All of these are warning passages. They must not be glossed over. They must be taken with great seriousness and applied to our lives. If Jesus is the Son of God, and we know he is, right? If Jesus is the Son of God, and if he's God's last word, like it says in Hebrews chapter 1, how unthinkable it must be to ignore his message, right? I mean, it's just unthinkable. And yet so many people throughout culture and so many of the Jewish people that were recipients of this letter, they turned their back on Jesus. They turned back on what he had to say, which was so detrimental to them and to their families. Now, in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 2 to 3, the Bible says, For the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, that would be the old, old covenant, the Old Testament, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was at first spoken through the Lord and it was confirmed to us by those who heard or the apostles? So tonight, I want us to answer an important question. Why did Jesus become a human being? Why? He was fully God, had been fully God for all of eternity, and yet he became a human being. So we want to answer that question. We won't answer it all tonight because it'll take tonight and next week. I'm, I hope to give you two answers to that tonight and maybe two more next week. So why was he incarnated? Number one, number one, here's the first one. Why did Jesus become a human being? To recover humanity's lost dominion. To recover humanity's lost dominion. Now the word dominion means authority. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2 verses 5 to 8, for he did not subject the angels to the world to come concerning what which we're speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, what is man? Now, this is a, a, a quote from the, the Old Testament. Now, remember this. You're going to find in the book of Hebrews a ton of quotes from the Old Testament. Now, you say, well, Pastor, why are there a ton of quotes from the Old Testament? Well, I'm going to let you think about that just a minute. Now, what did I say a few minutes ago? This was written to a what? A Jewish audience. Therefore, if you want to appeal to a Jewish audience and you want to gain a hearing from a Jewish audience, don't you think it would make sense to draw deeply from the Old Testament as you make your case? Obviously, I think you would. So here, here is a quote from the Old Testament. But one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. That's dominion. That's authority. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not see all things subjected to him. And we, that's certainly true, right? We don't see everything in creation subject to us, right? Do you realize that when Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, when they met a lion, they were not afraid of the lion. They had the authority to tell the lion, go take a nap. 
And the lion would go take a nap. Oh, I thought that was mine. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Jimmy, for reminding me to cut mine off. So, as in chapter 1, the author quotes extensively from the Old Testament. In, in effect, this, what I just read to you is Psalm, eight, four to, Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 to 6. So, I, I want you to see God's plan for his perfect world before it was corrupted. Now, you do realize that when God created everything, he created a perfect world. It was perfect. There was nothing that was out of order. There was no chaos in the world whatsoever. There was no disharmony between Adam and Eve. Everything was perfect. It was a perfect world. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 31, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our light. Don't, don't you find that interesting? That here in Genesis chapter 1, the, um, the, the pronoun our is you. Let us make man in our image. Now, what makes that significant to you? Well, obviously, it's not singular, right? It's plural. So think, think about this. Right here in the first chapter of the Bible, you've got the, the evidence of the Trinity. We, we are a Trinitarian people. We believe in God the Father. We believe in one God who has eternally existed as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all of whom are co-equal, okay? One God all of whom are co-equal, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule, here it is, let them rule, that's dominion, that's authority, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. There's not much left out there, right? Everything, everything Adam and Eve was given dominion over. The ability from God and the right from God to rule over everything. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them. Now notice what God said to them. God said this to the first two human beings before sin ever came into the world. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And look at this. And rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, and it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I've given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Well, what a powerful depiction. Now, remember, who named the animals? Did God name the animals? No, no the Bible says that Adam named the animals. They came by him and he named them. That's authority. That when, when you had your, your children, you had the authority and the dominion to give them a name. 
You gave them a name. Nobody else came and gave them their name. You gave them the name as parents. And that's exactly what Adam did when God told him to name all of the animals. David in Psalm 8 marveled. By the way, David wrote Psalm 8. And he marveled that God would share his power and his glory with feeble man. Now remember when David wrote Psalm 8, the fall of mankind into sin had already occurred, right? And that was certainly evident in David's life at a later point. So the Bible says that he marveled that God would share his power and his glory and his authority and dominion with mankind. The Bible goes, goes on to say here that, well, Bible doesn't say it, I'm saying it in my notes, uh, that man was created a little lower than the angels. The Bible does say that part. And therefore is inferior to the angels. But you know what? There's nowhere in Scripture that says that angels will have dominion in this world or the next world. It's not in there. Guess what it does say? It says at some point in the future, through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will see paradise regained. We will receive the dominion that we once had And only Jesus can give us that dominion back to us. Now, we we do have a serious problem because we don't see that yet. I I love what Ray Stedman said. He said, this is the whole story of human history in a nutshell. How visibly true this is. We do not yet see everything in subjection to to him or to man. Man attempts to exercise his dominion, but he no longer can do so adequately. He has never forgotten the position God gave him. For throughout the history of the race, there is a continual restatement of the dreams of man for dominion over the earth and the universe. This is why we cannot keep off the highest mountain. We've got to get up there. Though we've not lost a thing up there, and no, when we get there, we will only see what the bears saw, the other side of the mountain. But we have got to be there. We've got to explore the depths of the sea. We've got to explore the outer reaches of, uh, of space. That, that's just a part of who we are because this idea of dominion is written into our DNA as human beings. It's who we are. It's who God created us to be. Now, have you noticed that we can't even have dominion or authority over some of the the simplest aspects of life, like the environment? We we can't have dominion over the environment. I, I don't care what we say. I don't care what we try to do. We cannot control the environment. We can we can say this. Until the cows come home, we can say, well, global warming is going to destroy everything. Well, what are we going to do about it? What can we do? Obviously, we can't control the environment. We can't control medical research. We can't can't find a cure for cancer. We've been researching and pouring money into it for years and years and years, and we should still do these types of things. But we haven't found a cure for cancer yet. And then there there are a lot of other illustrations that we can go to, like morality. Think about morality. Look how immoral our world is. Look how corrupt our world is. My goodness, it's... I was talking with Bob Sorrell this, this today, and he, he said, Pastor, it's like you, you think you're at the bottom, and you've reached the bottom 
of corruption and morality. But then the next day you find there's a new bottom. And that's true, isn't it? We, we can't control this stuff. We don't have dominion over this stuff. Wouldn't it be nice if we did have dominion over it and we could stop all the foolishness that we see around us today? I want to tell you, one day we'll have it. Do you, do you hear me? One day, we as born-again believers will have the dominion that we lost at the fall with Adam and Eve. We will. Now, Paul acknowledged this futility in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 and 21. He said, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Do you know who looks forward to the consummation of the kingdom of God? Obviously we do. I'll tell you who else looks forward to the, to the consummation of the kingdom of God, and that's creation itself. In Romans chapter 8, just take your Bible, flip up to your left over there to Romans chapter 8. Just beginning with verse 14, let's begin reading. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And by, by the way, the, the clearest way that you can know you're a believer is not by what somebody tells you, but it's what the Spirit of the living God reveals in your spirit. When the Spirit of God reveals to your spirit that you're a child of God, you can go to the bank with it, right? You can go to the bank with it. And how does he do that? Well, he, he does it through the Word of God, right? He does it through the Word of God. He shows you a promise and if you match up with that promise, you know that you're saved. John 3, 16, if you believe in Jesus, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. And there's just a litany of promises that the Holy Spirit can bring to your heart to give you confidence and assurance that you're a born-again believer. John chapter 10 is another one of those great chapters that speaks of the of the security of the believer. And the Holy Spirit can lead you to John chapter 10 and just really drill down on John chapter 10 and help you to understand that if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you are in his hand. And if you're in his hand, no one can snatch you out of his hand. And if you're in his hand, you're also in the Father's hand and no one can rip you out of the Father's hand. That's how the Spirit of the living God confirms to your spirit that you're a child of God, that you're saved, that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Well, let's go back to Romans chapter 8 for just a moment. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation, notice this, the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. That's the consummation of the kingdom. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope 
that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So the Bible talks about this, this desire for this dominion that once was Adam and Eve's to be restored to the human race. And even the creation longs for that day. So as you look at, look at chapter uh, 2 verse 9 of Hebrews. But we do not see him. That, see everything 5 through 8 is about futility. Futility. Uh, we should have dominion. We do not have dominion. Okay. Then when you come to verse 9, futility is translated into fulfillment. Hebrews 2, 9, but we do not see him who was made for a little while. Now, it, this is why I love the King James, ver, not the King James, but the, I love the King James too. Uh, the New American Standard. Because the New American Standard is something I've always appreciated that really drew me the New American Standard to begin with. They capitalized the pronouns for Jesus. I like that. He deserves capitalization, right? And it helps you to understand. So if you notice here in verse 9, we do not see him, capital H-I-M, that's referring not, not to not to a human being, that's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Now, it talked about us being lower than the angels, the human beings, right? Earlier in verses 5 through 8. And now it talks about Jesus being made for a little while lower than the angels because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for every one. Now, think, think about this for just a moment. Let's take that first phrase. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. During the incarnation, when Jesus uh, left the glory of heaven, fully God, and became a human being, that's the incarnation, he appeared to be lower than the angels. Think about it. When Jesus, when Mary gave birth to Jesus there in the, the manger in Bethlehem, would you agree that it certainly appears that Jesus was, appeared to be lower than the angels at that moment? Would you agree with that? Do this. It's okay. It, I mean, it really does. Uh, th think about the angels in the, in the fields outside of Bethlehem. They're shining in all their glory and they're praising God. And then here's tiny baby Jesus, the Messiah. And he appears to be lower than the angels at that moment. Now, the eternal son of God became a man named Jesus. By the way, in, in the book of Hebrews, verse 9 is the first time that you see the word Jesus mentioned. First time. Well, what, what was Jesus referred to in chapter 1 when he was talked about so much? He was called the Son of God. Son of God, Son of God, Son of God. Then when you get to chapter 2, verse 9, the first time in, in context of, of incarnation, Jesus is mentioned by name, okay? Now, in the context of the son's humiliation and incarnation, the author chooses to remind his audience that the eternal son became a man, Jesus Christ. Now, don't forget who his audience was. It was a Jewish audience. Can you imagine a Jewish audience here in the first century? They're being persecuted. Their houses are being confiscated. 
They're being beaten and thrown into jail. And, and here are these Christians, these Christian Jews. And they're proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Messiah. He's the son of God. And he became a man. Can you imagine what a, a big horse pill that was for them to swallow? Can you imagine? And, and the reason we see in the book of Hebrews over and over this, this challenge, this tension that exists as the author communicates the gospel and challenges these Jewish people to believe in Jesus. And yet there's all these things that they have bought into their entire lives by tradition. And they've got to swallow their tradition and they've got to believe the truth of the word of God. It's difficult. It was hard for them, especially in light of the persecution. Now, look at page four. Jesus is God's answer to man's dilemma. Think about, think about this. When Jesus, he grew up, he lived a perfect life. Uh, at the age of around 30, he was baptized by John the Baptist. And he began his ministry. A ministry that would be short in nature. But during that short three, three and a half year ministry that Jesus had, he exercised lost dominion. He exercised it. He ruled over the fish. Take your Bible. It's an interesting little story. Uh, turn to Luke chapter 5. I love this story. Luke chapter 5. Jesus is teaching at the Sea of Galilee. And Peter's got a boat there. And, and in order to, to gain some ability to even breathe, Jesus needed to get away from the crowd just a little bit. So he got in Peter's boat. And Peter is off in the water a little bit. And Jesus is preaching from the boat. Now, what's interesting, every time... It seems that Jesus is teaching, he's sitting down. By, by the way, that's, a new, that's another Jewish aspect. When a Jewish rabbi taught, he didn't stand up like I'm standing. He sat down to teach. And Jesus is sitting down in the boat, and he's teaching the crowd. And after they got through teaching, Jesus said in verse 4, to, to Simon Peter, put out into the deep of the water, let your nets down for a catch. Now, it's the middle of the day now. You, you don't catch a lot of fish in the middle of the day. And yet Jesus said, go to the deep water, put out your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, verse 5 here, Luke 5, 5, we worked hard all night and caught nothing but I will do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. I'm telling you, they caught some fish. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Now, what did Peter realize at that moment? He realized that what had just happened was not normal and natural. What had just happened was a supernatural miracle by this one who would be the Jewish Messiah. He said, go away, I'm a sinful man. You see, Jesus had the authority and the dominion to take fish 
that normally would not even be remotely close to a fishing net and to bring them into a, a place where uh, two gigantic fishing nets would be filled and two boats would be filled and, and so much so that the boats are about to sink. Jesus had authority to bring fish together when it was not normal for fish to come together. And I, I could give, there's a time where, where Jesus, Peter comes to him and the, the scribes and Pharisees had really nailed Peter about the fact that Jesus not paying his taxes. Of course, Jesus always paid his taxes. And, and Jesus said, I tell you what, Peter, you go down the first fish you catch, you take out the coin and you take it and you pay your taxes and my taxes with that coin. Peter had to be thinking, what in the world am I doing? But he went down there and he took his Zebco and he threw his Zebco out there. No, he didn't have a Zebco, but, but he threw his net out there. He brought in a fish. And sure enough, he opened the mouth of that fish and there was a coin in that fish enough to pay his taxes and Jesus' taxes. You say, how's that possible? That's Jesus exercising the dominion that was rightfully Adam and Eve's and the human races. And then we see Jesus exercising dominion over the fowl, over the wild beast, over domesticated beasts. He reasserted man's lost dominion. Now today, everything is under Jesus' feet. He is in control of absolutely, in fact, the Bible says that Jesus holds all of creation together. Do you realize if Jesus were not holding all of creation together, that the thing would fly apart and we wouldn't have a creation to, to live in? Do you realize that? It's his authority. It's his dominion. Listen, in, in Revelation chapter 5, there's a wonderful story. Take your Bible. Turn to Revelation chapter 5 just a moment. Verse 1, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. You say, well, what is that book? Most conservative scholars would say that that book is the title deed to earth, to planet earth, to give dominion to the one who could open that book over everything related to the earth. And the Bible goes on to say, and I saw a young, a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. So John is weeping now. Nobody can open the title deed to planet earth. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seals, its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb. Wait, I thought it was a lion. But when he looked, it was a lamb. Standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came back and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So God, the son took the, the book from God, the father. 
And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of the incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. You've made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they, now I want you to see this. And they will what? They will reign upon the earth. Who will reign upon the earth? The ones who have been sealed, the ones who have been saved will reign upon the earth. Now look at this. I wish I could go on here, but look at Ephesians 1, 19 to 23. Paul really taught about this dominion that the Lord Jesus had over everything. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 to 23, he says, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? Believers. Have you believed in Jesus? This is you. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. You see that? And every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who feels all one day when Jesus establishes kingdom. Now, when is he going to establish his kingdom? At the second coming, he's going to establish his kingdom and, and he will reign forever. But it, I want you to understand that when he establishes his kingdom, we as believers will reign with him in glory and honor. And man will regain the dominion originally intended for Adam. Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 to 6. John to the seven churches are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us. I love this part. To him who loves us. He loves you. Jesus loves you. And released us from our sins by his blood. Aren't you glad that Jesus loves you? Aren't you glad that he has released you from all of your sins by his blood? And that he will make you stand blameless in the presence of God one day. Oh, my goodness. And then he goes on to say here, and he has made us, verse 6, to be a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Look at Revelation 22, 3 to 5. There will no longer be any curse. This is after the kingdom is consummated. This is after paradise is regained. It's almost like uh, Genesis 1 and 2 is, 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 is paradise created. Uh, Genesis 3 through all the way through Revelation chapter 20 is paradise lost. And then uh, Revelation 21 and 22 is paradise regained. If you, want, if you want an outline for the Bible, that's an outline for the Bible. That's the way it breaks down. So in Revelation 22, 3 to 5, there will no longer be any curse. 
No, no more curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. You know what you're going to do in the kingdom? You're going to serve Jesus. You're going to serve him. And they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night. And they will have no need of the light of a lamp nor of the light of the day of the sun. Because the Lord God will illumine them. And look at this. And they will reign forever and ever. Who are the they? Well, it's us as believers. We'll reign. Listen. The Bible talks about the, the judgment seat of Christ. Where we'll stand before the Lord Jesus. And he'll give us rewards based upon our faithfulness on this earth. But not only will he give us rewards, he'll give us responsibilities to carry out in, in, in the kingdom. Now, what those responsibilities are, I have no clue. But I believe he'll have specific responsibilities based upon the level of our faithfulness here on this planet. And we'll reign. We, we will reign. We'll have dominion in the area that he gives us dominion. This is a pretty good stopping place. Let me see. Oh, no, I know. I got another stopping place. All right. L l look, at, look at verse 9 again. But we do see him who was made a little lower, a little while, for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That word taste death for everyone, I looked it up in the Amplified Bible, and it says to experience death for everyone. To experience death for everyone. The ultimate curse of man's lost destiny and dominion is death. That's the ultimate. In Genesis 2, 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man, Adam, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day you eat from it you will surely die. You will surely die. Well, we know that Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Did they die immediately? Yes, they did. Not physically, but spiritually. They died. And they needed to be redeemed. That's why later on in the garden, you see God the Father coming. And where was Adam? He was hiding. He and Eve were hiding from God. And God killed an animal. God, look at this. God sacrificed an animal, a blood sacrifice to cover the sins of Adam and Eve, the first two uh, members of the human race. And they had to be redeemed. And God took the initiative for that redemption. And by the way, God has been taking the initiative for redemption for all time, especially with the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, I wrote something in my Bible. I wrote it small, so I got to. The crown for man, man's destiny or, or dominion, the crown for man, could not be returned until the curse was eliminated. The curse being death. 
Well, what, what removed the curse of death? The cross. The cross. That's what this is all about here in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. It's about the cross. There's only one explanation. The cross has conquered the curse. And that is such good news for us, right? Hey, listen. Sometimes, I'm going to be honest with you, I, I get so discouraged looking at this world and seeing what's going on in this world. Sometimes it almost looks hopeless until we dig into our Bible and we're reminded of what the Bible teaches us about the future. Now, look, you know how important I think prophecy is. I think it's so important, especially in light of what's happening in our world today. And we have got to remember that God has a plan and God's plan involves us. It involves the fact that one day this dominion that we lost will be restored to us through the finished and completed and consummated work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's going to be a glorious day. Heaven, the new heavens and the new earth for all of eternity are going to be absolutely amazing. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, the glory that's ahead of us, I mean, the suffering that we're going through now is nothing compared to the glory that's ahead of us. And we just got to keep that in mind. We got to keep our perspective intact. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for our time tonight. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that though Adam and Eve uh, lost our dominion, Lord, I thank you that you came to this earth 2,000 years ago and you lived out our dominion before our very eyes. You had dominion over fish. You had dominion over fowls, over beasts, over wild beasts. You, you had dominion over everybody and everything. You had dominion over death, Lord Jesus. You could say to Lazarus, come out of there, and he would come out of there even though he'd been dead for four days. Lord Jesus, I praise you that one day you're going to consummate your kingdom, and one day we will experience all that was intended for us when you created the world to begin with. Lord, we love you and thank you. Use us this week for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. God bless you.